You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Hurricane Douglas certainly gave us something else to think about for several days. County officials are still reassessing our storm preparedness, but for many, we've turned our attention back to school readiness. The school board takes up a tentative agreement between school officials and the teachers' union Thursday on delaying the first day of instruction for at least a couple of weeks. No matter what island you are on, it is the cause for much hand-wringing. We talked to Kauai County Mayor Derek Kawakami about the school situation, as well as getting through our close call with Hurricane Douglas. Some 74 people sought refuge in four designated shelters there. In a sense, you know, without having the visitor industry, it made it much more manageable. I didn't hear any issues with the volunteers, except that there's a concern that during this pandemic, many of our volunteers are in what you would call that kupuna status. But, you know, in a sense, these people, it gives them a sense of purpose to be able to do the work of the American Red Cross. And so, although we have a concern, we also have them well trained as far as keeping themselves safe. And so we're very fortunate to have partners like the American Red Cross to be able to provide volunteers and shelter staffing. Did you have to tap any government workers to show up? The uh, National Guard did. I think on some of the other islands, they asked some of the essential workers to come in and fill the gaps. So KCC was a designated shelter, so I'm not sure if they staffed it with some of their... They had some of their own staff, yes, that's confirmed. But other than that, we u- utilize National Guard because they have an on-island presence. Maybe some of our employees did, but not to the magnitude that I'd say it was reportable. I know it came up in a conversation that one of the islands had to staff those shelters with their own associates, and it was a concern. But for Kauai, that wasn't the case. We were worried because that storm really moved fast. It moved very quickly, and then when you take a look at the radar, it I mean, it literally looked like it was going to come over us. But, you know, that meteorologists, they understand those readings a lot better than mayors do, so they know what degree those radar images correlate to wind speed, moisture and so they they pretty much knew that um at some point we were in a relatively safe situation even though as mayor i was on pins and needles because we always gear up for a worst case scenario because we often tap schools as emergency shelters there was a big question mark right because school is supposed to open next week we don't know if a decision will be made to postpone that, but what are your thoughts? Well, I think they should just follow their plan. I mean, you know, I, I you know, here on Koi, we actually read plans, and, you know, the Department of Education's plan sounds great. The only problem that we have is their presentation of what school is going to look like is geared to be slated when the state of Hawaii is in a recovery mode. And so that was the biggest hang-up. We said, hey, look, you guys presented this plan. It looks great, but are you guys rushing it? Because teachers are not trained. Some of them may have been, but on Kauai, you know, it's far and few between as far as that type of training. And it's not something you can rush. You have to go through the steps to make sure that these teachers understand how to sanitize and so on and so forth. And so... The plan looks great, but it's, you know, we're still in the act with care. And when you see the recent cases that Koi has had, and when you see the sudden surges and outbreaks on Oahu, and if you take a look at the governor's plan that works hand-in-hand with the Department of Education, I think a lot of people would look at some of the descriptions in each phase, whether it's stay home, safer at home, act with care, recovery, or new normal. And a lot of people would say, that we're actually closer going back to a safer at home than to just jump to recovery. So we don't have an issue with the plan, but they need to make sure that they follow it and not rush things through because the last thing that we want to see is our schools and the Department of Education having sort of all the fingers pointed to them as being the cause of a big outbreak, especially on Kauai. I mean, we got our numbers in today. We have nine ICU beds available. More than half of them were filled, and they're not even COVID-19 patients. These are just regular residents that need to have an ICU bed. And so our healthcare capacity doesn't have the wherewithal to handle a big surge if should one if one should happen on Kauai. So every county is unique. I can't speak for the other counties, but we would rather take a, a cautious approach to the reopening reopening of any sector, especially when you're dealing 
with an organization the size of the Department of Education. You know, from time to time we've heard of shortages, you know, like, oh, there's not enough soap in the bathrooms, you know, that kind of a thing. And now that sanitation is, like, paramount, do you feel comfortable that it's going to be safe for your community, the school community? Tell you the truth, you know, some of the reasons why we don't have soap in some of our comfort stations at parks is because when we take the time to use taxpayers and their hard-working money to put these amenities up, they get vandalized by our very own people. You know, I know a lot of people like to put a lot of blame on the visitor industry, but I got to tell you, when you take a look at who's vandalizing our public facilities, who's misusing them, who's littering at times, it's our very own people, and that's what that's what's heartbreaking. The school supply list, and there, there's a burden on families to be able to even buy pencil and paper for their kids to go to school, but in a sense, it's almost as if, you know, these kids are going to have to bring their own soap because I'm not sure what is even being provided to the schools. You know, it seems like from school to school, there is no standard. And I may be wrong. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting information from teachers that live on Kauai and, and people that have concerns. And although there are assurances that, you know, these schools have enough PPE for their teachers, that they have enough hand soap and hand sanitizers, because the county has been sort of left out of the loop as far as the reopening of schools, we really don't know what's going on, you know, and that's where our biggest concern is that on the county level, we have what we call our emergency operating centers that are operated under the mayors and our emergency management administrators, and we work very well with various state departments, HIEMA, the attorney generals, um, and other departments, because we understand that sort of command structure requires collaboration and constant communication. So if you have any one of these agencies working sort of um, in a silo and forgetting to keep us in the loop, it's hard for us to, to give them the green light because we're in a disaster. And when you're in a disaster or in the situation where we have to have our EOCs activated, it's critical that these departments understand that they have to work hand-in-hand hand with us for us to be able to sign off because at the end of the day, we're not going to sign off on anything that we're not brought into the loop of because we're in charge of keeping people safe for the island of Kauai. That was Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami. We were able to talk with him yesterday afternoon about the situation there on the Garden Isle post-Hurricane Douglas and looking ahead to the start of public schools on the island. It's time now to go to the BBC with the latest COVID-19 news. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday the 28th of July. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. Is Europe facing a second wave of the pandemic? Global tourism and airlines take a huge financial hit. And the Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli says Italy's Covid rules are humiliating. The pandemic is showing no sign of slowing, with 16.5 million cases now confirmed around the world. Numbers are rising fastest in Asia, the US and Latin America. Even countries which seem to have got on top of the virus are struggling to stamp out new outbreaks, as the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson warned. Let's be absolutely clear about what's happening in Europe, in, in our, among some of our European friends. I'm afraid you are starting to see, in some places, the signs of a second wave of the pandemic. Mr Johnson was explaining why his government had imposed a 14-day quarantine on travellers returning from Spain. Germany, Belgium and France have also advised people not to visit three regions of Spain which have seen rising infections. The Spanish government insists the country is still a safe tourist destination. There are concerns about a rise in cases elsewhere in Europe too. The authorities in Belgium have tightened social restrictions to try to avoid a fresh lockdown there. In Germany, average daily infections are up nearly 60% on the previous month at more than 550. The head of Germany's disease control agency, Lothar Wieler, says it's unclear whether this is the beginning of a second wave, but he warned people not to be negligent. The latest results show that the coronavirus is considered by the population to be a lower risk than before and that the acceptance of measures such as distancing rules has also decreased. At this point, I would like to be very clear once again. We ourselves are largely responsible for determining how the disease will develop in Germany. Please help yourselves, all of you, continue to respect the rules. 
According to new figures from the UN, the global tourism industry lost some $320 billion between January and May as a result of the pandemic. The loss is three times as big as it was during the financial crisis of 2008. There's also been a dramatic decline in demand for air travel. The Air Transport Association says it will take a year longer than previously forecast until 2024 for passenger traffic to return to pre-COVID levels. Health workers in Brazil have urged the International Criminal Court in The Hague to investigate the government of Jair Bolsonaro, accusing it of crimes against humanity over its handling of the coronavirus. The group says that government negligence has contributed to the deaths of more than 80,000 people. New research has shown the damaging effect of the pandemic on the level of nutrition available to children in developing countries. The medical journal The Lancet says an extra 6.7 million under fives could be at risk of wasting, one of the most severe forms of malnutrition. Chika Hayashi is from UNICEF. The socioeconomic shocks created by the pandemic, especially in low-middle-income countries and lost jobs, are leading to a less quality diet, and especially in the most vulnerable populations, this can be having nothing to eat, especially during this lean season between planting and harvest, or only eating starchy meals and not having the essential nutrients for people to grow, especially children. Without timely action, the global prevalence of child wasting could really rise by 15%, which is a real shocking number. Numerous studies have concluded that face masks can prevent people spreading germs to others. But a new paper due to be published in the Journal of General Internal Medicine suggests that masks can also protect the people wearing them, lessening the severity of symptoms or preventing infection entirely in some cases. One of the most memorable images from the lockdown in Italy was when the opera singer Andrea Bocelli sang in an empty Milan cathedral at the height of the outbreak there. It was widely seen as a gesture of solidarity, but the tenor has now been criticised for comments he made at a conference with opposition politicians in the Italian Senate, as Mark Lowen reports. The world-famous tenor said he felt humiliated and offended by the lockdown, which he confessed he had disobeyed, urging others to refuse to follow the rules. And he said he thought the outbreak had been overblown since he didn't know anyone in intensive care. Mr Bocelli has since claimed he was misunderstood, but for many relatives of the 35,000 people killed here, his comments will be seen as tone-deaf. Finally, recordings of silent streets in lockdown London will become part of the collection at the Museum of London in a project chronicling the pandemic. The soundscapes will be made available alongside recordings from the same streets in 1928, with roads in 2020 far quieter than they were almost a century before. And that's the latest coronavirus global update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kilauea Lodge and Restaurant on Hawaii Island, with a welcome back to residents from across the state, located in a tropical rainforest and featuring select rooms with fireplaces. KilauaLodge.com. On the next Fresh Air, former poet laureate Natasha Trethaway, her black mother and white father, had to leave their home in Mississippi to get married because interracial marriage was still illegal there. After their divorce, her mother married a man who turned out to be abusive and years later shot and killed her. Trethaway's new memoir is about her mother and about race. Join us. Starting this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. The big economic news is the announcement from Governor David Ige and House Speaker Scott Psyche that Hawaii is on Japan's safe travel list. For months, the state has been working to reach an agreement on a travel bubble to allow some visitors between our shores. We reached out to the Honolulu Marathon's Jim Barahal for what the news may mean for the December road race. 
it's good news that at some point we will be able to get visitors from Japan, certainly with the situation right now with COVID, both in the United States and to a lesser extent in Japan. I wouldn't expect to see a huge surge of visitors right away, but this certainly opens the door in a very responsible manner to, to begin the process of reestablishing the big part of our economy, which is tourism-related, and particularly tourists from Japan. And I think the big thing is confidence. We've seen with other things like SARS, you know, and 9-11, right? It took a while before people could say, okay, I'm good with traveling. Right. This is a, an early step. As expected, it requires tests, a PCR test, in order to come into Hawaii. This is a very accurate test. It's considered the gold standard at this point, and it looks like they'll be testing on both ends for Japanese visitors. I think it's a vote of confidence in Hawaii and the way that the people of Hawaii have handled COVID to this point, and um, I expect that we'll continue to do so. For the marathon, we're certainly a long way. It's four and a half months, but it's a long way from saying we're going to have a Honolulu marathon in December, but it's a good first step, and we continue to plan in the hopes that the situation on December 13th will look a lot better than it does now. And with the resumption of safe tourism, that we'll be able to find a way to put this event on, which is a very important event economically for Hawaii. And I think in this situation would be a very important psychological boost to show that life is getting back to normal in some ways. There are different races that have been canceled. You know, the Ironman was the latest, the Century Bike Ride. Everybody's looking at, you know, virtual events. Can you talk about some of the things that you're looking at? Our race director, J.J. Uh, Johnson, who's really a world-class race director, has put together a very robust plan for the Honolulu Marathon in conjunction with input from other people on our team, which really covers everything involved with the event from the time people pick up their race packet to getting to the starting line to the way the start will be orchestrated to things along the course such as aid stations, actually looking at the course itself to try to avoid areas of extreme congestion, and looking at the finish line, the finisher shirt, the finisher medal. Pretty much everything that you can think of in the Honolulu Marathon has been evaluated, reevaluated, and is part of a plan which would make the race, quite frankly, look a lot different, but we think safe and doable if the situation as we move more towards December begins to improve. The marathon, which historically has 25,000 people on the course, is not going to be that big this year, even if it were to be held. Given that the entries are down, we haven't really actively been soliciting entries. And even with the resumption of some tourism from Japan, the numbers will not even come close to approximating what people are used to when they think of the Honolulu Marathon. That being said, if it were to happen, it would still be a lot of people. Our plan at this point is to provide fluid for the participants without involving the large-scale aid stations that we have used in the past, so there'll be little to no human contact at the aid stations. We do have a plan. We will be testing it in the next three weeks, and we are confident at this point that we can provide fluid for thousands of people in a new way. What about the virtual aspect of some of these races that we are hearing about? Well, virtual race is a, is a way of bringing a community together in a non-physical manner. It enables people to get a finisher shirt, to get a medal, and to do an event. In this case, it would be the Honolulu Marathon remotely, essentially, by uploading their performance, their confirmation that they completed the distance on a GPS, and, and creating a database and, in effect, having a virtual Honolulu Marathon. That is something we are looking at. We do plan on having that in conjunction, we hope, with the physical race. If there's not a physical race, then the Honolulu Marathon will be a virtual race only this year. We think it'll be fun. We think it'll connect people. As I say, get them that medal and that shirt. But long-term, of course, we want to have this race on Hawaiian soil and get back to the Aloha spirit and what, what makes the Honolulu Marathon unique and special for people all over the world. Are you hearing anything from your elite runners? Well, we are hearing a lot from our elite runners and, and from the agents and coaches. And unfortunately, at this point, although we're optimistic, we're realists. And it's very difficult at this point for us to make a commitment to any elite or professional runner, given the uncertainty over COVID and what's going to happen in December. So that's a very difficult situation. Uh, we are planning to have the race every day. We work on it. Every week we meet with our Japan team via Zoom. But we're optimistic, we're hopeful, and we're working hard. But we're also realistic. We also live in Hawaii. Personally, as a physician, I'm very involved in the COVID situation in terms of testing, evaluating, and uh, treating, and especially in the area of telemedicine. So we have to be realistic. We're members of the community. The only thing that really matters is that the community is as safe as it can be. And 
we're hopeful that that will include him in the Honolulu Marathon in December. But again, it's difficult to make these kinds of commitments, both to individual athletes and also the financial commitment that that would involve. We have $150,000 in prize money at the marathon, and I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that this year. As I said, the marathon will be smaller. It'll look a lot different. So every part of it has to be reevaluated. You were looking at some of the big races, Berlin, Toronto. I think Berlin was canceled. New York, Chicago. Every one of them has been canceled at this point. The only one left that has not been canceled is London. That's in October. It's going to be a tough one. I am hearing that it's more likely that London will be an elite-only professional race run around the park. I'm assuming that means the park near Buckingham Palace. I don't know that for a fact. London has huge charity components. They have a, the top professional field in the world, the, the best athletes, television contracts. So I think when we look at London at this point, I think we might be looking at more like an NBA or Major League Baseball type situation in which it's more of a professional-only event and not having the masses of people out there. I just read the recommendations from the British Track Federation and, and the guidelines for a mass race to be staged, and they're quite restrictive. Properly so, but it would be difficult difficult to put on a race, I think, with those restrictions. The other issue that we deal with here as far as the major races, our insurance comes from USA Track and Field. And that's why I mentioned the British uh, Track Federation, because even if everything fell into place for us and it was deemed safe by everybody to put on the event, we also would have to convince or would have to have the support of United States Track and Field to get insurance. And I'm not really looking at that situation that carefully right now because I think we're a long way away from crunch time on that one. But the the insurance issue, I think, is going to be real. Honestly, if the situation with COVID is the way it is now, I don't think we're going to have a Honolulu Marathon. But that being said, things have changed a lot week by week. As I said earlier, COVID time is different. A day is a week, a week is a month, and a month is a year. So I don't have a crystal ball, and I'm not ready to say what things are going to look like in December. So we're going to keep plugging along and getting ready and doing the right thing for our event and for the community. Cross our fingers and hope that news of a travel bubble. And I know some people aren't going to like this. I know some people in Hawaii don't want any tourism. They don't want anybody coming here. And I understand that sentiment. This is a very scary thing. People are are very afraid. So some people aren't going to be happy. But I think we have to start to reopen Hawaii carefully baby steps, and I think Japan is clearly the the ideal market to begin to do that. So I applaud Governor Ige on his decision. I know he's acting responsibly, and we'll take this as a good first step. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Jim. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate that. That was Jim Barahal of the Honolulu Marathon talking about the news that Hawaii is one of 12 places that Japan is considering to resume international travel, though no date has been announced. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Telepets, a telemedicine company in Hawaii offering online veterinary care including pet medication. More about scheduling a virtual visit at telapets.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, are reparations for slavery an idea whose time has come? The material redress would bring about justice by affecting the racial wealth gap. We'll hear arguments for and against reparations, plus a hat full of other ideas to address the racial wealth gap. We need an affirmative action program in housing. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Starting this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Our reality check segment today looks at why ballots may still be sent out to people who have died or moved away. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us with the story. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you, Catherine. Yeah, so it's interesting. You talked to a number of people who are getting the ballots of people who have died. Yes, 
uh, not only folks that have died, but some households are getting ballots for former residents that haven't lived there for years. Other folks um, are getting ballots for folks that are incarcerated. And again, yes, um, some people have passed away um, but are still getting ballots sent to their their former homes. Um, I asked the Honolulu Elections Division about this, and they said, you know, the voter registry is a, a living document. It's regularly updated, but um, some people do fall through the cracks. For example, the State Department of Health sends um, periodically a list of people that have passed away to the Elections Division, but that's only people who have died in the state of Hawaii. It's not people who have died out of state. For those folks, they're still going to keep getting ballots until, you know, those ballots bounce back to the Elections Division, and then they can, you know, investigate and determine um, what's going on and remove the person from the registry. Um, sometimes people move away. They don't file a change of address with the Postal Service, so the Elections Division just doesn't know that they've moved away. And they kind of err on the side of caution of leaving people on the registry rather than taking them off and potentially eliminating eligible voters from the yeah, rolls. You found someone that had, what, five different tenants' um, ballots? Yeah. Sent to them. Yeah, one guy I spoke with um, got five ballots for people that had rented at his property years ago. Um, and he, you know, thought they were on the mainland um, and he's still getting ballots for them. But the, the common thread of all the folks that I talked to is that they have gotten uh, these ballots, but they didn't know what to do with them, um, and they didn't send them back to the elections division. So that's a way to basically guarantee you're going to keep getting ballots. Um, the elections division stressed to me, you know, updating the voter registry is a collaborative effort. So they only, you know, can keep it as updated as, as they get information. So if you have an extra ballot, um, just write not at this address on it and put it back in your mailbox so that they can update the registry. Now, I know there's concern when people get these ballots and the people that need to vote are not there. Uh, but there's concern about voter fraud. Right. It can feel unsettling when you get a ballot that's not intended for you. But the good news is that there are safeguards. So um, every ballot you have to well, first of all, you can't open mail that's not yours or you're not supposed to. Um, so that would be a crime. And also signing, you'd have to forge someone else's signature to to vote for someone else. Um, and when the city receives the ballots, the signatures on the ballot need to match what's in their system. So that's the signature folks used when they registered to vote. Um, often that's you know, the signature you have on your license when you, you signed up with the DMV. So if the signatures don't match, the elections division will contact the voter to figure out what's going on. If the issue can't be resolved, then the vote doesn't count. So um, that should give folks some peace of mind, hopefully. Right. So so people, though, need to reach out to the Office of Elections or the city clerk's office if, if they're uncertain about, you know, the ballots. Exactly. Yes. Um, the, the city really doesn't want to do any kind of massive uh, like voter purge of, of the voter rolls. Other states have done this, and um, there have been concerns, concerns from advocates that it eliminates people who are legitimate voters, and then you end up with a voter disenfranchisement problem. Um, one academic paper I read even said that when, you, when you're weighing whether to, to purge uh, the voter rolls or potentially risk double voting, um, a purge could eliminate 30 legitimate voters for every potential duplicate. So it's a delicate situation, um, and the Elections Division said they're they're doing their best, and it's as secure as it can be. Does anybody have any good numbers, you know, as to uh, how many ballots are sent out and, and the people don't live there anymore? The Elections Division didn't share that information. They, it's not something they really track, um, but anecdotally they said most of the calls that they receive are people that, you know, have lost their ballot and just need a replacement. Um, it's not something they hear about a ton. Um, and in terms of voter fraud um, cases where someone, you know, receives a ballot for someone else and votes with it, the Honolulu Prosecuting Attorney's Office said they've never had a case like that. And I know there is concern because our voter turnout is terrible and everybody's hoping that, you know, uh, this vote by mail will encourage more participation. Right. Yeah. I spoke with Sandy Ma, who's the executive director of Common Cause Hawaii, and she said, you know, we really don't need to worry so much about the voter fraud issue. It's nationally and locally incredibly rare. The real issue is um, voter participation, voter turnout. Um, in the 2018 statewide general election, only 52.7 percent of voters cast ballots. 
um, she's saying we can do better than that, and that's where we need to focus our efforts. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. The new school year is right around the corner, and while most attention has been on the possible reopening of pre-K through 12, universities are also grappling about whether to reopen or transition to online learning. For international students studying in the U.S., this has created a potential serious legal problem. HPR's Ryan Finnerty joins us to talk about it. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, Ryan, what can you tell us? We understand there's some new information that affects foreign students. Catherine, non-resident students studying in the United States are granted the right to enter and live in the country on what's called a student visa. There are a couple different categories, and they all come with different restrictions, and one of those covers remote classes. Before the pandemic, international students were essentially restricted to no more than one online class per semester, and failure to adhere to that would basically result in their visa being voided, and that would leave them eligible for deportation or unable to come into the country if they left. Um, that changed back in March. Federal Immigration and Customs Enforcement issued guidance saying that it would relax the restrictions for remote learning in recognition of the challenges posed by the pandemic. And that seemed to be going fine for a little while until earlier this month, ICE issued new guidance saying that it would be returning to the pre-pandemic rules regarding distance learning. Uh, I spoke with John Egan. He's an immigration attorney who uh, runs a refugee and immigration law clinic at the University of Hawaii Law School to get a, a little bit of a sense of what it meant. Basically, what it said was if your program is all online, you do not qualify to be in the country as a student. Many colleges and universities across the country had said, well, we're going to go all online. This was really sort of startling news, you know, less than six weeks in some cases before the beginning of the fall semester. And as John implied there, uh, that move would have been hugely disruptive, not just for the students themselves, but also for the universities. Um, he told me that there are roughly 4,000 international students here in Hawaii and more than 1 million nationwide. Uh, and this rule would have left many of them potentially unable to enter the country or left them here illegally if they were already here if their institution was going fully online. Uh, Harvard University and MIT sued the federal government earlier this month. It got a lot of media attention, uh, and, and more than a dozen state governments also sued. Uh, and it, it kind of got a lot of attention. The Trump administration agreed to withdraw the rule change before a court ruling was handed down, so there was no legal ruling or no court decision. Um, and, and this was hailed as a victory by schools uh, and for students, but it appears that some of that may have been premature. Um, for one, the, the agreement that was apparently struck between the government and those universities still doesn't allow for a fully online program of study. Uh, and this is what uh, Jennifer Walsh explained to me. She's the provost at Hawaii Pacific University in Honolulu. It didn't fully resolve the issue. So it was reported as a reversal in the press, but that wasn't exactly true. It does not allow for students to have a fully online schedule for the entire semester. So if at some point we have to switch back to the online only option, then students would still be at risk for deportation. And what the government said it would allow is what's called a hybrid course of study. That means it combines in-person and remote instruction, um, but it could still leave international students in a jam. Last Friday, ICE issued a clarification on this whole situation, and it said that its initial 
pandemic exemptions that were issued in March will only apply to students who were already enrolled on March 9th, which was the date that those rules came out. Uh, so what that means is that new first-year students planning to enroll in the fall term that starts pretty soon are now potentially locked out from coming to the U.S. if their school is going fully online. Uh, on Friday, NPR reported that the heads of several major academic institutions on the mainland were advising their uh, first-year international students to stay home in their home countries and participate in remote learning from there because uh, they didn't think that the, the students would be able to come into the country. And to reiterate, this only applies to students who are enrolled in a fully online program, as we heard, um, in-person instruction or a hybrid blend of in-person and remote learning uh, is, is still going to be accepted based on the current rules. But that's still a problem because many schools are worried that they might have to potentially switch to fully online if conditions worsen either in their, their communities or their states or on their campus with the virus. Um, and that would leave international students in a really difficult position of potentially being in the country illegally if that online switch happens. I don't know if you have a sense, you know, are there a lot of students that are still here in the country that this could affect? And then what does this mean for the universities, like, bottom line? Yeah, there is a potentially pretty significant financial impact to all of this. Um, a, a lot of institutions have said that uh, international students are a big part of uh, of their, a big contributor to their financial health because a lot of international students pay full tuition, whereas American students will typically be eligible for a significant amount of financial aid, depending on their situation, and they're not paying that full sticker price. Um, international students are not necessarily eligible for that, and so they're, um, they're paying the full price. So that's important. Um, and they're just broad, more broadly, they, they are big contributors to the local economy. Um, John Egan, that immigration attorney, attorney said that there are about 4,000 international students in Hawaii uh, on, you know, under normal times, um, and they contribute around $120 million to the local economy. Uh, and nationwide, it's even, it's even larger. There are more than a million international students, he said, and, and they contribute more than $40 billion annually, uh, spread all across the country at different institutions. So it's a pretty, pretty big impact. Uh, and, and given the fact that we're going through a pretty serious recession right now, we, that's the kind of uh, economic activity we need to be generating both here in Hawaii and, uh, and nationally. So it, it could be a, a pretty serious issue, um, and, and it's one that still seems to be a little bit up in the air. Yeah, well, I know HPU, who you talk to, you know, they traditionally uh, have a lot of uh, foreign students come in, and then we saw with Chaminade, you know, they've been advertising to try and get students to stay home and uh, and go to school here versus going off to the mainland. So just so much unknown in this fall semester. But thanks so much, yeah, Ryan. Yeah, that's really the bottom line. Yeah, thanks so much. Sure thing, Catherine. We have been talking with HPR's Ryan Finnerty about the situation facing our international students. Douglas has underscored just how vital our shipping and ports are. Harbors across the state were locked down as the storm approached, and while they reopened without fanfare, any damage could have caused interruption and delay for incoming goods. An important consideration for our shipping industry is the Marine uh, Merchant Marine Act of 1920, also known as the Jones Act, established after World War I to ensure uh, security in transatlantic shipping. This regulation requires that goods shipped between U.S. ports be transported on ships that are built, owned, and operated by American companies and crew. While critics say the 100-year-old law is one reason for Hawaii's high cost of living, a recent study published by the American Maritime Partnership found that consumer goods in Honolulu were only a half percent higher compared to Los Angeles. 
The study was produced by economist Paul Brubaker of TZ Economics in Honolulu and Reeve and Associates, a management and economic consulting firm based in Massachusetts. The conversations Jason Ubai spoke with John Reeve, principal of Reeve and Associates, about the study. We understand that the cost of living in Hawaii is very high by any uh, parameters that you want to measure it by, and it's consistently at the top or very near the top of all the states of the U.S. in terms of cost of living. So it's a sensitive subject, obviously. Now, the Jones Act has been a popular uh, source of criticism because it does require U.S. ships, U.S. uh, crews, uh, and U.S.-owned ships to operate to the non-contiguous territories and states of the U.S. So we delved into, and we actually did a pretty comprehensive uh, search uh, for 200 different commodities, what the prices were in Hawaii, what the prices were in Los Angeles, which is obviously one of the major ports where Jones Act ships travel to and from Hawaii and the mainland, and uh, found that there was not a significant difference, actually almost a negligible difference. Um, We looked at uh, five different sectors, clothing, uh, groceries, building materials, automobiles, durable household goods. And if we averaged all of those differences up, we came up with a 0.5% differential, i.e. the cost in Hawaii were half of a percent higher than they were on in California. Now, clearly we recognize that the cost of shipping from the mainland to Hawaii is there. You know, it's not disappeared. So why are the goods in Hawaii not that much uh, greater than they are in, on the mainland? And I think the fact of the matter is that some of the uh, major retailers, and we looked at the, the major retailers such as Costco, Walmart, Home Depot, Target, and then the, the car dealerships. And I think it's their policy to have generally uniform prices across the board. In some cases, uh, in, a, in a minority of cases, uh, goods cost a bit more in Hawaii. In some cases, they actually cost less. Generally, that was our primary finding. The other thing is that the Jones Act ensures that Hawaii has access to a dedicated, customized maritime transportation service that the carriers in that trade have ships that uh, have both containerized and roll-on, roll-off capabilities, and then there are other barge operators who can carry uh, out-of-gauge cargoes. And they provide uh, those services on a very regular, high-frequency, and fast transit time. They operate directly between Hawaii and the mainland. They don't go traipsing around the Pacific or off to Asia or whatever looking for other cargoes. And then the last issue that I would point to is that the Jones Act is still remains key to our national security. Um, over half of the sailors that equipped or manned the vessels that were used in the second uh, Desert Operation, uh, Iraqi Freedom Operation, over half the sailors that were used to man the U.S. government's uh, fleet of roll-on, roll-off, fast sea lift ships, et cetera, that were moving cargo and goods to the Middle East for that, uh, half those sailors came from Jones Act operations. Without that base, we, the taxpayer, would be uh, having to increase uh, substantially the amount of reserve training or whatever, or uh, full service active duty for uh, those sailors. So I, I would just point to those as, you know, that, those are the key findings from the report. The uniform prices. What about for smaller businesses? The I, I know you compared uh, Costco and in your findings or in research with this uh, with the Jones Act. Do you see that prices are uh, affect small businesses and other businesses that may not have operations on here in uh, in, in California? Well, the reason we do this um, research, we did this research with the WalMarts and the Targets, et cetera, because they do have online capabilities and they have you know i mean so we're comparing apples and apples i mean i could go to a deli uh, on the upper west side of new york and order a bagel and i guarantee that bagel will be more expensive than one from staten island and so that's why i'm really uh and and so we, we want to compare apples and apples you know, the residents of hawaii have access to the the big box stores and i understand that not everybody shops at a big box store but to really get a fair comparison of prices, 
we really need a um, apples and apples. So, you know, to go uh, traipsing around uh, trying to compare one deli versus another deli is a good way to get uh, apples and oranges comparisons, but it's not particularly fair to anybody, frankly. So, I mean, that's why we do we did this, and that's also why we use the uh, Kelly Blue Book for automobile prices. Having the Jones Act means that there's a dedicated fleet between uh, Hawaii and the West Coast and other U.S. ports. I believe there was something about increased capacity. There's, uh, I know Matson has a few both. Can you talk about that? How some security with the Jones Act uh, going into the future? Well, yes, these guys. Um, well, Matson and Pesha basically have spent, what I think it's about two billion dollars in uh, new assets and terminal improvements in, in Hawaii, uh, you know, that's a major investment for the future. These are 30-year assets. These are some of the most uh, fuel-efficient and environmentally friendly ships out there. They're powered by LNG, which very few foreign flagships are at this point, if any. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty significant investment in Hawaii and the Jones Act, uh, you know, by at least those two carriers. I know there's been movement to waive Jones Act for Hawaii and also Puerto Rico. How would that affect the shipping costs here? That's a good question. And, and, uh, and it's also a question of not just cost, it's also service. But uh, let's, you know, let's deal with the cost. As you'll see in our study, about a third of the total cost of ocean transport is um, affected by the Jones Act. And that's the capital cost of the ship and the crew. The other costs, such as stevedoring, inland transportation, sales, administration, equipment, like containers and uh, roll-on, roll-off equipment, that's going to be the same for a foreign flag operator as it would be for a U.S. operator. We're talking about a, a differential of a, you know, 35% total, I think, in more exact terms. That's our estimate, frankly. And those are with those brand-new ships that are coming out, too. So, you know, these are expensive vessels. We don't pretend that it costs less to build a ship in U.S. shipyards than it does over in Asia. That's not the case. And U.S. seafarers like U.S. truck drivers and U.S. airline pilots, et cetera, they tend to earn a higher wage level than uh, their foreign compatriots, particularly from Asian uh, countries. But on the other hand, you have efficiencies that uh, you have dedicated terminals in, in Hawaii in the mainland that the Matson operates. You can argue that their inland operations are at least as efficient or perhaps more efficient than some of the foreign operators. And the fact is, on the service side, the ships go directly between U.S. ports and Hawaii, mainland U.S. ports and Hawaii ports. We don't know what a foreign flag operator would do. And then so a foreign flag operator introduces vessels and crews into this mix, and now they have to comply with U.S. regulations that affect uh, manning levels, uh, safety levels, uh, you know, and the, the U.S. Maritime Administration has estimated that the extra costs they would incur would essentially wipe out whatever advantage they have within that uh, 35% or so that uh, they can compete, you know, with, with the U.S. flag costs. So, you know, the cost uh, impact might be negligible, if any, and I just go back to the fact that the goods don't cost that much more in Hawaii anyway. So you really haven't gained much, if anything. And you've thrown away a key strategic asset and dedicated service and high service level, you know, in the process. Now, and remember that there are two ways that a foreign flag carrier could, or carriers, if you like, they could operate uh, divert ships from operations, say, across the Pacific from Asia to the West Coast. But none do that today. The key market for them is getting to the mainland. So they're not stopping by in Hawaii, a much smaller market on the way, which would undercut their competitiveness in time and also in, in cost because they're adding days to that leg. And then coming back, now they've incurred these costs that the U.S. government would require for them to be operating in domestic trade. And now they're undercutting their competitiveness in the foreign, foreign market. I think it, any impact on costs would be negligible. That's rarely discussed that, you know, other, I think people say there's going to be an advantage for consumers and businesses here, but, you know, we also have to think about will, you know, foreign flagships uh, actually make a profit from doing business with us in, uh, and, uh, you know, is it worth the, the extra cost that they'll have to, to bear? 
Yeah, and, and Matson is a uh, public company. You, you can uh, take, take a look at their financials and so on. And, also, and I would note that, by the way, the freight rates that were provided to us on a confidential basis from the carriers, they haven't gone up in a decade. And I'm talking about in nominal dollars, not in real dollars. So, I mean, that's a, uh, and that indicates, number one, the highly competitive nature of this market. And there are two major carriers and then the, the smaller barge operator. But that suggests very much that uh, this is a very competitive market. And frankly, it's been to the advantage of the Hawaii consumer. That was John Reeve of Reeve and Associates discussing the positive impact of the Jones Act. You can find a link to the study at hawaiipublicradio.org. Grassroots Institute of Hawaii, which supports Jones Act reform, will release its own study on maritime shipping regulation tomorrow during a live webinar with Representative Ed Case and Senator Mike Lee, a Republican from Utah. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to reconnect with the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. through September. HonoluluMuseum.org. They say that 15 minutes of classical music a day is all it takes for Keiki to reap benefits from this rich art form. How do you do that? Simple. Tune to HPR2, your home for classical music, while they're doing homework, getting ready for bed, or in the car with you. It's easy, and it'll help lay the foundation for a lifetime of music appreciation. Listen to HPR2 wherever you are. Tune in on your radio, stream on our mobile app, or listen on your smart speaker. Well, we have run out of time, but we'll be back tomorrow to talk about, well, we plan to talk about back-to-school plans for Iolani School, everything from boarding to athletics. What are your concerns about returning back to school this fall? We would like to hear from you. Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Check us out on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.